Hello, and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd, with me, Barbara Drew. Today, I'm sitting down with Ed Richardson, one of our private client managers, to discuss a broader definition of fine wine, buying wines en primeur, and wines from Sonoma. Ed, welcome. It's great to be here. So we are sat in the Bourne Room, this beautiful varnished wooden table. We've got a very tempting looking bottle of wine in front of us that we are not allowed to touch just yet, but really looking forward to tasting that later. Before we get into it, Ed, tell us a little bit about your background in the wine trade. How did you start in wine and what route did you take to where you are now? So I actually, I didn't start in the wine trade. I had a real job before joining the wine trade. I was a consultant in the city advising companies on commercial strategy, so completely different from fine wine. But wine has always been a passion, something that I think derives from family interest in wine and a love of the product. Around about 2015, I plucked up the courage to start doing it a bit more seriously. I did all the WSET qualifications. All um, of them? Yes. Well, all of the ones up to diploma anyway. Sure, there are others that I'm not, uh, (laughs) I probably haven't mastered yet. Then started looking around for jobs within the trade. And it's quite a small world, certainly compared (laughs) to the city that I had come from. So it took some time, but eventually found a job working with private customers, private collectors, with a little uh, London merchant, and then subsequently have only ever really worked with private collectors. It's been a somewhat circuitous journey to where I am now, but a very enjoyable one. A uh, not unfamiliar story, I think. Many of our colleagues have had interesting journeys from other careers before getting into wine, so you are not alone. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, and I certainly would have considered myself to be a private collector in my own right before joining the trade, so my knowledge of wine isn't exclusively 2016 onwards, it goes back a bit further than that. That's quite an important point, actually, is that so many people who work in the wine industry are themselves wine lovers, and they've had their own journey. So you can see both sides of the coin. And I think that's quite important, understanding how customers think, understanding what it's like to get into wine for the first time if you're not familiar with certain regions. And the joy is that most people in the industry do have that experience. Absolutely. Collecting is a journey that I very much still feel I'm on. I am advising collectors on a daily basis, but it would be amazing if you tasted every vintage ever of every single (laughs) wine. It's part of a learning process, even for people within the trade. I actually think that's what helps build relationships with customers very closely because you feel that you're both appreciating this wonderful product together. And it's not just a sort of one-way traffic of advice, it's a shared experience. Really helps explain why the relationship of a collector with a wine merchant is a very close one. I would agree. I think this idea that those in in the wine trade or account manager, your wine merchant has all of the answers. That's a myth that we really need to dispel. I've lost count of the number of times people have asked me, oh, I want to buy this wine. Is it a good wine? Should I buy this wine? Should I have this wine with my dinner this evening? And it's almost as though people hand over their personal responsibility to the wine merchant and lose their own personal preference or involvement in the decision and actually encouraging customers to realise that we can guide, we can support, we can advise, but it's really important that you personally take charge of your seller. I like these regions, I really want to do this, rather than simply saying, there, go and make my decisions for me. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be terribly boring if we just accepted all of our advice and moved on to the next question? The beauty of this topic is in its variety. And I would encourage anybody who's starting out in the collecting journey to explore. You may well come at 
find wine from a particular direction. My father loved claret, and that's the direction I came at it. But unless you explore beyond the boundaries of your initial experience, you're not going to know what amazing things still lie out there. And it's a horrible way of speaking, but the more data points you can gather on different wine styles and vintages, the easier it is for us as the merchant to advise you appropriately on where to put your cellar. So it always must remain an exploration of fine wine, I think, rather than just here's a list of things that we think you might like. I like that term, exploration of fine wine. So tell me, what does your typical day involve? I normally get in actually pretty early. I manage a small team of five account managers. And so we need to make sure all our ducks are in a row for the day ahead. There will almost certainly be something that we're offering at the moment. The Bordeaux en Premier campaign is in full swing. The first hour or so of the day is planning that I know that the team has got all the information they need to offer out the wines to the right customers, the right collectors. And then we go about executing that plan. And that's usually when the day starts to go wrong. Um, (laughs) But generally speaking, it's getting through an offer schedule. And then in the afternoons, what we'll be doing much more of is as customers come back to us, we'll be engaging with them directly, usually via email or on the telephone, ideally. Some may even be coming into number three where we're sitting now to meet and discuss the seller. And that is the absolute building block of the day, really, because we want to know what our customers are after. And we want to keep in touch with them as closely as possible so that they've got the most appropriate seller they can have. And then in the afternoon, quite often what we'll have is a little team tasting of something. Mm-hmm. We're very lucky. Lots of producers fly into London bringing samples of new vintages or old vintages. And the team will taste often with a winemaker who can give us the lowdown on the latest vintage. And that's the really, really fun part of the day for me because you get to appreciate and taste some wines and begin to enthuse about them with your collectors. You know, I've just tasted this amazing new vintage of X, Y, or Z. And you'll find that very quickly that enthusiasm is well received. With so many producers to choose from and so many delicious wines, how do you personally decide what to recommend and what customers should be putting in their cellars? The first thing to note is that you can't recommend them all. There's an embarrassment of riches uh, really within the Berry Brothers portfolio of wines and it would be impossible for me to recommend them all. So trying to find wood from trees is really what is the main task and that can only happen by having a close relationship with the relevant collector. I know somebody likes wines that are delicate and red-fruited. Right, we're putting ourselves in a category there that maybe some Pinot Noir might be of interest. And then you can whittle it down. What is the customer wanting? Do they want to drink it tomorrow? Or is it a question of laying it down for the long term? That will impact the choice of wine. Also, price is going to be a consideration. That will, again, narrow the kind of lens of wines that you're able to recommend. Are customers open with you about price or is there this delicate dance that you often see and if you're eating out in Britain and you're looking at the wine list and your sommelier is trying to recommend something and you don't really want to say how much you want to spend. I mean, are people quite clear on that or do you have to try and deduce what they want to spend? It varies. I think some people are very clear and have a very, not just about price, but a very structured approach to collecting. And they, you know, I want 25% of my seller to be X, 25% to be Y and nothing above £100 a bottle. You know, some people are very structured and others are much more open to a discussion. The price is something they're very willing to pay if the opportunity is exceptional. Mm. My role is really to advise them where I think things are exceptional. It's worth paying 
be extra money versus something that might not be. It is a conversation you often have to tease out. Value is all relative as well. If I'm Jeff Bezos, my impression of value might be completely different to somebody else's. So I'm not here to impose my own idea of, oh, I wouldn't drink anything above 50 pounds a bottle because you know, I don't think that's good value. Everyone has a different perception of that. Yeah. So it's part of my job to, to use that information to then advise in the most appropriate way. Talking about wine collecting and building a wine collection, as our listeners will know, we've been around since 1698, so very, very old, and we've been selling wines and spirits, not for the entirety of that period, but for a good couple of hundred years. So is collecting wine something that has always been part of the wine trade, storing bottles for 10, 20, 30 years, or is this a relatively recent phenomenon? It's interesting you say bottles. I mean, it all begins really right when the age of glass manufacture was coming to the fore. Actually, bottles were far more expensive than the content that was in them. Hmm. Really, what you would do is collect barrels of wine, potentially. And I think some of the earliest literature on wine collecting is actually from Thomas Jefferson, who, when he was French ambassador to the United States, and he buys in entire barrel loads of what are now Bordeaux first grades and ship them back to the United States. And some of the most expensive bottles ever sold at auction are, I think, of some of his own Lafitte. Allegedly. Allegedly. Anyway, collecting has a very long history. Did everybody at that time have the means to do it, or even a very, very small proportion of society, really? The sort of top layer probably would have been able to do it. In the last 30 years, we've seen an absolute explosion in the number of people wanting to lay fine wines down for the long term. So on a more personal level, my grandfather and my father would have, I suppose, what you would now call collected wine, though they might not have described it like that. Mm. They would have bought two or three cases of something, knowing that they may or may not get through them all. They had a very thirsty family, so they did. But (laughs) that gave people optionality that later on, maybe they would have sold one and that would have contributed to the initial cost. And that method of collecting buy two, drink one, maybe sell the other, depending on how delicious you find it, has worked really amazingly well for collectors over a very, very long period of time. And I think, to my mind, it still remains the most sensible way of collecting wine. I want to touch a little bit on wine investment. You've mentioned that a good approach to collecting is to perhaps buy two cases of wine, to drink one, and then maybe to gift one or sell one further down the line. Where does this leave the notion of investing in wine? Is it still possible to make your fortune in wine investment? There's quite a lot of danger in getting caught up in the terminology. When people say investment, you know, suddenly it starts picturing numbers appearing on a board in the city somewhere with traders waving their hands and lots of money being turned over. It couldn't be further from the truth with fine wine. Most of a case of wine, all it'll do for a very long period of time is absolutely nothing at all. So this, this idea of get-rich-quick schemes, I think, is false. And that's actually really much more in the realms of speculation rather than investment. And the way I think about it is actually collectors are investing in their drinking future. They're putting money now towards something that is going to be a better product 10, 20, 30 years hence, depending on what type of wine it is. And I think if you bear that in mind when you're building a collection of fine wine, you'll not only drink superbly well, but there is every chance that down the line you might want to sell some wine and within your collection because you've got too much or you've decided actually your taste has changed and you know you started loving Claret and now you like Barolo. There are lots of reasons why you might want to rationalise your cellar. But actually the original logic of buying a couple of cases, laying them down, and then having the uh, decision of whether to drink or gift or sell, that's the way to do it. I also wanted to touch on the role of 
the wine merchant here. Of course, lots of producers today, you can go to their cellar door, you can taste their wines, you can buy their wines. Has the wine merchant had its day? Is the wine merchant dead? No, it'll surprise you to know I don't think it is. I think that actually the role of the merchant nowadays is more important than ever. We have a very finite supply of fine wines within the world. Not everywhere can be turned into grade A vineyards. Not every producer is as skilled as another. And actually, global demand for fine wine has exploded over the last, well, certainly since during my career and my drinking lifetime, has grown considerably. And not just in, I'm using inverted commas here, but old world markets, but in new markets as well. So actually, you've got way more collectors pursuing quite a small slice of the planet's fine wine. So the role of the merchant, both as an allocator of existing fine wines, but also going out and exploring for new opportunities is, I think, more important than ever. One of the reasons I'm here at Berry Brothers is because I believe that we're exceptionally good at those two roles, both in finding new opportunities and in making sure that the very rarest wines uh, in the world are being allocated to great customers who we hope are going to enjoy them when they're ready to drink. So which regions do you think are the sort of new and exciting regions that collectors should be getting excited about alongside merchants? I get excited about lots of things, Um, (laughs) but I actually think the world of fine wine has expanded a little bit into newish territories. And the development of those vineyards and the growth of those vineyards are one of the things that really excites me about new regions. And we'll come on to the bottle I bought in a minute, but it's a great example of where brand new project in a very carefully chosen location can, I think, produce great wine. And the real joy is then seeing these young projects set against ancient vineyards. Viticultural history of somewhere like Burgundy is a thousand years old at least. Steve Kister's project, Occidental Pinot Noir, is decades old, so from its first inception in his brain. The growth of the new and set against the old is this wonderful contrast, I think. That is really, really exciting. Do you think that there is a tension there between wines which are built versus wines which are made, wine that naturally springs from the earth in Burgundy versus one that's been very carefully planned out and planted? Or is that not really true? Is that not what happens on the ground? Well, I'm not sure it's true. I mean, the vineyards of Burgundy are very old. They're very well understood. But there isn't a difference in my mind between planting a vineyard on the east-facing clay limestone slope of the Cote d'Or that there is planting it in a coastal region like Occidentals is. They are just different expressions of a single grape variety. And actually, Pinot Noir being a wonderful lens to see different parts of the world through. So I don't think that there is a conflict between old and new and established and new. I think actually that there's beauty in the contrast. Things come out of the contrast. This may well be more obviously fruit forward, for instance, than a, a Burgundy of equivalent age. But that doesn't mean it's any less capable of being a great wine. They're just different. You're talking about this wine so much. I think that we have to try it and decide for ourselves whether we believe this is a great wine. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about the wine and then I'll pour it out and we can have a taste. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, uh, as I say, a relatively new project, masterminded by one of California's great Pinot Noir advocates, Steve Kistler. This is the Station Vineyard from 2019. And this is one of the inland sites within the Occidental map. And it's a little earlier ripening. And I think it has a little bit of sort of bluer fruit than some of the others. What on earth does that mean? It basically means that you might taste a few more, um, you know, blueberries than you've perhaps with raspberries or strawberries, which some of the other cuvées have. 
And in terms of the location, where about in California, coastal? Yeah, so we're on the Sonova Coast Appalachian. This really is quite influenced by cool oceanic breezes blowing in off the ocean. There's a current that runs up the west coast of California and brings with it very, very cold water. Particularly in the morning, coming off the ocean is, is very cool and keeps this uh, a much more maritime, cool climate, Pinot Noir, than some others within the state of California. And I think that that appeals to perhaps more to old world drinkers and certainly appeals to me. Let's pour it out and have a taste. Sonoma Coast, I mean, this is really quite close to San Francisco. So I think when people think of Californian wine, there may be a perception of sunshine and it's very dry. But of course, San Francisco can be pretty chilly. Chilly and foggy too, can't it? It can bring in quite a lot of moisture from the ocean and that helps deflect some of the sort of radiation that you might otherwise feel and hopefully imbues this with a, a great deal more freshness. It smells rather lovely. Difficult to capture facial expressions <laughs> on a podcast, but wow, that is extraordinary. Really fragrant, beautiful ripe fruit, blueberries, maybe some damsons there, mm. but with no sense of jamminess or overripeness picked at just the perfect time. Steve does pick this vineyard, I think, the earliest, generally speaking, of the set. Do you feel that real sort of crystalline crunch to the fruit rather than a lazy, oozy jamminess, as you say? <laughs> Lovely um, description. There's a tiny little bit of spice there. Some cinnamon. I don't know if he does any whole bunch work here. Maybe a tiny yeah. touch. In- I often find that Californian Pinots, I, it's quite hard to work out sometimes whether that comes from the wood or from a little mm. bit of whole bunch. But as this is a bit more peppery, I think it might well be the winemaking rather mm. than the, the element. Tasting this wine, there's a few things that certainly strike me. First of all, the acidity. Mm. Really beautiful seam of acidity running through this wine. And of course, acidity is very important preservative. If you look at many of the traditionally long-lived wines that you would put down in a cellar, they do have lots of acidity. And this showing me that this is going to be a wine that ages incredibly well. There's actually quite a lot of tannins here. They're very subtle. They're very ripe. They're very well integrated into the wine, but there is a lot of persistent tannin, again, giving it this beautiful structure. And then overlaid on that, this you know gorgeous sort of silken fruit profile just weaving between the structure and flavors that go on and on and on Mm. i mean certainly equivalent in many many ways to a premier cru burgundy with that depth and complexity and subtle power there as well i love these wines and i think that that comparison is great and i think it deserves to be put in that category of of premier cru burgundy i think you will get a different experience you know this is from a sunnier part of the world and i think you feel that mostly in the fruit profile of this less perhaps in the physical characteristics. Mm. You know, I, as you say, the acidity is very present and the tannin is very present. I don't think that that profile is way out of line with Premier Cru Burgundy, but it's that kind of sun-kissed richness of fruit at the beginning, which I think is that different stamp, is that Sonoma stamps versus Burgundy. And I love comparing these wines to others. When I serve them to people, I, I don't usually do it blind because I think it's terribly unfair. Um, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> but they are astonished about how sophisticated these wines are. And I think it's part of a slight problem we've created for ourselves here because we sell an awful lot of old world wine, but actually collectors can be quite dismissive of entire regions without understanding that Sonoma Coast has a very different physical characteristic to other parts of California, other parts of the new world. And I think until you actually demonstrate and show bottles to people, have people taste them, it's a bit of a wake-up call when they try them because they suddenly realise there's this whole 
other bit of collecting that they have slightly ignored and suddenly you're revealing that to them and that it's a source of huge pleasure for me as an account manager. I think it's important to, to highlight that the alcohol on this wine, it's 13.5%. There is sometimes this perception that Californian wines in particular, but those also from Australia, New Zealand, South America, the alcohol level is always very high and that's simply not true. I mean, you will come across many a Burgundy these days where the alcohol is 135 even 14%, certainly from Grand Cru Vineyards in a warmer year. So this, in terms of structure, is really quite similar to Burgundy. Um, it's just got a touch more of that ripe fruit. But even in Burgundy, we are starting to see an evolution of style of wine produced. Um, more and more wines have got more of that upfront fruit earlier. I think the distinction here is not as wide as you might expect. I'm now wishing that I'd asked for two different bottles compare <laughs> side by side. I think it's a very interesting observation though that if you're looking at alcohol levels mm. for example if you're comparing Burgundy with California or in this case Snow Coast I think there is a bit of an exchange of ideas going on much more so say than a generation ago between new world producers and old world producers. It could be in reference to Burgundy it could be in reference to the Loire but there are lots of particularly younger generation producers being very inquisitive about what's done differently in warmer areas of the new world and taking back, you know, viticultural and winemaking ideas to Burgundy and slightly tweaking the recipe in reference to a series of warmer vintages they've been having there. That exchange is a wonderful thing in the wine trade in general. I think that it's one of the most collegiate places to be. Lots of people sharing ideas and even vineyard cuttings and thoughts about how to produce the greatest wine they can because they share this sort of common objective and the common objective is a delicious beverage it's nothing else other than that i think and that's it's a wonderful thing it's not really a competition no, it's exactly, um, you yeah. know very much a community of people working together um, i'd be interested to hear your view on how you think this wine will age what older vintages of this wine have you had and what did they taste like there sadly aren't very many older vintages of this wine this is a is a relatively new creation and i certainly haven't had very old bottles i tasted the 18 2018 vintage of this but i i haven't had anything older than that it has all of the physical characteristics that you would need for aging, I think, for at least 10 years, in my view, which is not to say that everyone will drink it at that point. I think there's charm and fruit in this as a young wine, and there is nothing wrong with consuming it in that state. Will it age and, I think, become a bit more complex, a little bit more integrated, perhaps, over time? Yeah, I certainly think it will. One of the reasons why wine is traditionally sold by the case is because you can go on that journey. You're not just buying one bottle and it's all over. You've got three, six, 12, depending on your case size, to draw upon over a number of years and see how it's evolving. And that, to me, is why buying wine by the case still remains really the most sensible thing for a serious fine wine collector to do. So are you starting to see people putting more Californian or more New World wines into their cellars, or are there still very much this preference for... Bordeaux and Burgundy? We are starting and I think a, a lot of that is because as a merchant someone like Barry Brothers is investing a lot of time and effort in bringing direct allocations of these wines into the UK market. It's actually a relatively new thing to be doing on a systematic basis. Traditionally the method of sale particularly with some of the most famous names of Napa Valley would have been via a direct mailing list to which UK collectors had very little access unless mm. they were fortunate enough to have a pied à terre in California. <laughs> but these are now being bought in as and sold on premier or before the wine physically arrives in the UK as Bordeaux might today. So 
they are increasingly getting a more level distribution footing with old world wines. I think that's helping people to understand the proposition a bit better. I think we're doing a better job of introducing these wines to collectors. While it still remains a relatively small part of the average collector's cellar, I think it will continue to grow very strongly over the next few years. I think the wines are terrific. They've had some wonderful vintages interrupted by some tragic wildfires. Mm. But I think that the beverages speak for themselves. If you're interested in collecting fine wine, I don't think your cellar can really be complete without some reference to California with it or the wines of the United States, which is an awfully big topic, which we'll need a whole other podcast for. But I do think this is an absolutely vital piece of any cellar. I would agree. This um, certainly is the sort of wine that I would appreciate having some more of in my cellar. And I think it's important for people to understand that Californian wine isn't just big, heavy Napa red wines, although there are some really excellent Napa producers out there making fantastic Cabernet Sauvignons and so on. There are much cooler regions. You can get really very delicate wines, um, very savoury wines, very light, almost ethereal wines, um, if that is the style that you're going for. Absolutely. I know, you know, it's a very big place. We've also got some incredible Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from up in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, Nicholas J. Wines, a whole host of great producers. And I think that what you're seeing is a, a gradual acceptance of those among collectors. And then what starts to happen is an inquisitiveness about what else is out there. You know, and we start to have conversations with the collectors about, you know, what they've tried and what they've enjoyed. And it eventually is every chance that that wine may end up being offered by us. But it's that two-way thing, which is such a nice part of introducing somebody to a new region. You've alluded to how difficult it is to get hold of some of these wines with allocations. You perhaps have to be on a US mailing list, even if your wonderful wine merchant can get hold of these wines for you. The volumes produced are so small. What advice would you have for collectors who are looking to put Screaming Eagle or Harlan or a similar cult wine in their cellar, but they can't quite get their hands on it? I think the short answer to that is a bit of patience. Wine is a long-term game. As a beverage itself, it matures quite slowly, depending on what wine it is. And I think, you know, collectors have to have a long-term view. As we spoke earlier about the journey of collecting, turning up on day one and asking for the rarest thing, whether it be at an art gallery or a wine merchant, it's a hard thing to acquire. But have a conversation with your account manager and we can take you on a journey towards the rarest wine of the world if you're willing to put in the sort of time and interest into it. And one of the great things about working here at Berry Brothers is we have this amazing site here at number three where we are able to introduce to our customers some of these wines that you're talking about at dinners and tastings. So you'll get to experience yourself the joy of drinking wines like that and then it's up to us to have a conversation with you about how best to go about acquiring a case and it may be something that we're able to readily supply or it may not but if you don't have a conversation with your account manager we won't ever know do ask the question and we'll advise you as best we can you mentioned earlier that some of these wines are sold on premier now the on premier system is something that is widely used to distribute Bordeaux. To what extent do you think it adds value to some of these new world wines or do you think it's a confusing system for buyers to understand? Personally I think it's a confusing system in general because it is a little bit of an anachronism. Back before when Bordeaux Chateau were not as wealthy as they may be today, at least some of them, it was a means of getting incoming early so that they could pay the pickers. 
for the new vintage. That absolutely does not exist anymore. Really, the system is a marketing one. And I think it works very, very well for Bordeaux. Do I think that New World producers absolutely need to adhere to that model? Definitely not. They may choose to. It may be a nice way of making a fanfare about the new vintage. Or if they are developing vineyards, again, getting capital into plants, an incredibly expensive business planting new vineyards. So that may be a consideration. But is it the be-all and end-all of fine wine marketing? No, I, I don't think it is. And that actually, probably more important is having somebody out there that you trust to demonstrate to you what it tastes like, to write a really nice tasting note that you feel compelled to have in your cellar. That's much more important, I think, than actually when in the calendar it appears or whether it's sold before it's in bottle or after it's in bottle. You just need to trust the, the relationship you have with your merchant that it's going to be good. We've had a look at California. Are there any other regions outside the classic European regions that you think any serious collector really needs to start looking at? Definitely. I am a particular fan of the wines of South Africa. I think it particularly makes some amazing Chenin Blanc and it makes some amazing Syrah. And I think rather like this more coastal expression of Pinot Noir, I think the quality of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in South Africa is also improving in cooler regions like the Hemlinard. I think still got a way to go in translating itself to the global market as a top fine wine region. And I think that's because there are also a lot of other more bulk wines produced there that confuse matters slightly. But isn't that the same in Bordeaux? Yes. Um, I mean, there's quite a lot of inexpensive, undistinguished wine produced in Bordeaux. And yet that's not how that region is viewed by collectors. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a slightly strange phenomenon. And I think it has to do with partly with the simplicity of the 1855 classification in the minds of collectors. I think it's a nice way of stratifying what happens in Bordeaux. You've got this uh, elite five tiers of property, which has been nice and easy for people to pin on the wall as the poster child of every seller. I think if you don't have that kind of structure, and you know, you've got to remember, you know, apartheid was not a long time ago, and actually the emergence of South African wine into the global market is a very, very new thing, even though some of the vineyards are very old. The actual idea of fine South African wine is, is quite new, I think, within, if you remove van der Constance, possibly, from, that's always an exception to, to everything, isn't it? It is still emerging. It's still trying to create, I think, that structure, that niche in the mind of the global collector, where it truly belongs, I believe. I think so the wines are, themselves are, are superb, and they've got some amazing old vineyards still to be discovered there, I think, or still to be revitalized is probably a better way of describing it. I think that's an incredibly exciting region. I'm a huge fan of Pinot Noir, as you've probably understood by now, and I think New Zealand makes some wonderful Pinot Noir, both from Central Otago, from Martinborough, and wonderful Chardonnay as well. So I think there's a huge amount of excitement within the new world, and I think that what used to be, in some instances, stylistically very different wines, but qualitatively a gap between old and new, I think now, stylistically, the wines remain very different, but qualitatively not so. I think actually the gap, if there is one at all, is very narrow now. And to those customers who are looking for a really long track record, they're only going to put things in their collection where they can see that they age consistently well, what would you say to them in terms of diversifying their cellar? Well, I think the goal of any cellar is to have fine wines in it. That's not to say that you should only really be looking at things that have a decade's worth of track record. This doesn't, what we're drinking now, this Occidental Station Vineyard, doesn't have that track record, or at least I haven't experienced it. 
you know, and you would miss out, I think, hugely by not exploring wines like this and not adding them to your cellar now. Because the danger is you then, all you're ever doing is paying top dollar for accessing the most famous names in the world. You haven't actually gone on a journey with a new producer like this and collected the wines over time and, and been there from the beginning. And I think that's a shame, almost certainly financially, but it's a shame because you won't feel the soul of those wines within your collection. You won't feel as attached to them. If you just go around shopping for only the Chanel handbags of the wine trade, you know, I think that it's not as satisfying a journey as carefully picking producers that you like and following them vintage after vintage. That, to me, is the most satisfying thing about being a collector. Actually not having oodles of the feet, though I do enjoy drinking that. It's actually, have you gone start to finish with something? And I think that's the mark, I think, really of a, of a sort of a true collector in my eyes, anyway. It comes back to this idea about experiencing wine. It's not just about collecting it and having the cases in your cellar. It's about taking them out, sharing them with friends, having them with great food, and that almost emotional connection, whether it's a producer that you've been to visit, whether, as you say, it's a producer that you've been following for years and you can see how the wines have evolved and yeah. you can see now they're cult wines <laughs> and you are on the mailing list because you were buying them from the very beginning. I think having that connection is really important. Absolutely, yeah. And nobody needs this stuff to live. You know, it's, it's all part of embellishment of life. And I think unless you're sharing it, unless you're enjoying it with great food, it's slightly pointless. I do very occasionally enjoy a glass of wine on my own at home, but it's nothing like as satisfying as when you're talking to somebody about it and sharing ideas and thoughts about it and, and ideally eating something equally delicious with it. So if you're not interested, I think, in experiencing fine wine, you probably need to ask yourself whether you know building an enormous collection of fine wine is really the right thing for you to be doing. Perhaps it's something you're leaving to your children, or in which case I think that makes sense. But if you don't at least have some interest in the beverage and some interest in sharing it with people, I think it's such a shame if it just ends up staying in a storage unit forever and never being actually consumed. Indeed, ultimately, wine is it's made to be drunk, to be enjoyed, to be shared. And I think all of the producers that we, we work with are quite clear about that that it's about experiencing the wine and the pleasure that it gives absolutely they put in an incredible amount of effort and i would say love into producing these bottles and it is a very great shame if they don't ever get drunk we alluded to great wines of the world being made in relatively small volumes and producers are often very very keen that sellers that the wines end up in are going to be drunk you mentioned that you yourself have your own wine collection of course. Is there a case of wine or a bottle in your collection that our listeners would be surprised to hear is in there? Very good question. I, as I alluded to earlier, quite eclectic tastes. So they may well be surprised that German Riesling is next to Napa Cabernet, but it is. And I enjoy them both equally. And yeah, it, I wouldn't, what's the most surprising thing? I'm not sure. No cases of Blue Nun. No cases of there. Blue Nun. I, I've clearly drunk them all. That must have been what's happened. But um <laughs> No, there's there's nothing in there like that. It's actually quite a conservative cellar, but it's broad, I think is probably where I would describe it. And I don't think there's anything sort of too left field in there. Is there a wine that you would most like to add to your collection, but you've not yet managed to track down or get hold of? Oh, there's a very long list. Yes. 
I think sort of top of the list, I love Barolo and the producer that I've always followed, but never been able to afford or had the opportunity to buy a case is Bartolo Massarello. And one day I will, I will get one. That's a gaping hole in my cellar currently anyway. Top of your wish list. Mm-hmm. In terms of advice to budding collectors, new collectors, or even those who have got a fantastic wine collection, but are looking for even more advice on how to improve it. What would be your top tip, your insider tip? collectors first of all is to keep exploring keep coming to events and engaging with fine wine as a topic doesn't have to be at Barry Brothers it can be anywhere within the world of fine wine and if you're based in London you're incredibly lucky because the trade comes to you uh, much more than it does I think any other global city really so keep exploring and keep talking to your account manager because there may well be things out there that are highly appropriate to your collection which you haven't heard about yet or experienced yet so I would just keep an open dialogue with your account manager and keep enjoying fine wine. That ultimately is the most important thing. Keep opening bottles and appreciating them with good friends and family. Very sound advice. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse Occidental Wines, visit bbr.com podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your own fine wine collection with Barry Brothers and Rudd, all the information you need can be found on bbr.com slash collecting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. I'm off to try and find a Pinot Noir that Ed hasn't tried. Cheers.